to Collision Cast, Fender Bender's official podcast, helping collision repair shop operators make money, save money, and work smarter. I'm Mike Munzenreiter, associate editor for Fender Bender, and with me today is Jason Chardon, senior global expertise delivery manager at 3M. Today, Jason and I are talking about advanced materials, meaning aluminum, ultra high strength steel, and more. Ford's aluminum body F-150 came out in 2015, and now aluminum is very common in the mass market. Repairs are getting getting a handle on it. Where is use of the material headed now? Well, while Ford's F-150 was was probably the most expansive use of aluminum in a mass market vehicle, um, mm-hmm. it, it really you know wasn't the first. Um, and I'm not just referring to you know Audis or um, any other high end niche vehicles. Um, We've seen aluminum closures uh, in vehicles for the past 25 years, hoods mainly, um, some deck lids and, and door skins. Um, but the future of aluminum is, is much certainly much, much more of, of the same, right? We're going to see much more uh, use in all closure panels. I think it's, it's, if it's not quite there yet, it soon will be as just the default. If it's a, if it's a closure panel, um, it's, it's going to be aluminum. Um, the, the really cool thing that, that kind of comes out of this is, you know, the, there's two big industries, you know, in, in the or, or conglomerates, if you will, or trade associations um, associated with these metals, right? You've got the steel industry and then you've got the aluminum industry um, and both keep kind of working, uh, not against, but, but, you know, influencing each other and challenging each other. So as the aluminum industry continues to innovate and, the OEMs perfect their forming techniques, I'd expect some modest growth in, in what we see in aluminum body structures, but the steel industry is, is also innovating. Um, and, and so I personally bet on steel um, rather than, than anything else uh, to remain the primary choice for body structures for quite a long time. Um, but aluminum, they're doing their best to, to catch up. Got it, got it, yeah. Um, in, in some of the notes you sent my way prior to this interview, you mentioned that aluminum was really expected when it when it got more wider and wider into use. It was expected to be a game changer, but that hasn't necessarily worked out that way as expected. How so? How has it not well, been a game changer? I, I, think, I, I think when Ford made the announcement um, that, you know, that the single largest selling vehicle in the United States was going all aluminum, um, and they were taking their cues from, you know, their, their other brands that had been aluminum for a while, um, from the aircraft industry. Um, and, and they laid out, um, some, some challenges or changes that they wanted to see happen in, in body shops in the way of, of aluminum hygiene, especially in isolating areas. Now, I think Ford was really realistic in their expectations. They didn't demand separate buildings and, and everything, but the industry kind of took this as, oh my goodness, you know, aluminum is here. I, I need to build, build a separate building. I'm going to have to erect walls. I'm going to have to have separate everything to really handle aluminum in my shop. And this is going to change everything. Um, but what we see though is that shops have adapted again with the assistance of Ford uh, and, and the manufacturers of you know, collision repair materials and equipment. They've really discovered that good aluminum hygiene and, and the procedures in, in use for most of the Ford truck repairs can be done with common sense, right? Don't immediately, you know, take this tool from what you're doing with steel onto aluminum unless you've cleaned it. It's a great idea to have, you know, uh, separate tools wherever possible, but if not, you just have to remember the hygiene. Um, and so 
And so far, really, Ford remains somewhat unique in their approach, right? No other OEM has really gone all in with a high volume fleet. And so, whereas six years ago, it was, hey, if Ford's doing this with the F-150, everybody else is going to follow suit. That didn't really happen. Ford certainly has gone all in uh, with their large vehicles. But other than that, it, it still is, is pretty limited. And they've taken a very common sense approach that doesn't require us to, to, to start over with our, our shop layouts. What are, what are some OEM concerns about welding, welding aluminum during the, the collision repair process? Well, I think welding in general can be a concern for the OEMs in repair. Um, mm. the, the unfortunate fact is that the vast majority of techs in the U.S. are really ill-prepared for structural welding. Um, it's probably a lack of training, you know, either on technique or how to set up their welder, and probably both. Um, or it's a lack of detailed quality control uh, in the shops. Uh, but techs often struggle to make even acceptable plug welds, right? Uh, our, our spot weld replacements. Um, I know an ICAR instructor uh, that uh, teaches the welding certification exam, and, and he routinely sees up, upwards of around 80% of the techs fail their initial weld certification test. Um, it, it takes a lot of work with those students to, to get them to the pass point, and they really you know, learn at that point um, you know, what they're doing to, to make a truly good weld. And, you know, I think if we were to talk to ICAR, we'd see that, you know, the number of people who have actually taken that exam is, is a very low percentage of the, the population of technicians. The problem comes in that thinner materials and heat sensitive alloys like ultra high strength steel and aluminum, you know, aluminum's got a much lower melting point and it, and it conducts heat very well. So it's, it's hard to get a, a high heat in one area without heating the entire panel. Um, that's, that makes it very difficult to, to weld. Um, and it's a larger challenge than just doing a, a steel plug weld. So anytime that uh, an OEM service engineer can kind of eliminate welding, um, they're gonna jump at that chance, right? Welding has got a, a lot of variables and a lot of unknowns in our industry. Um, it's really an art and it, it offers too much dependence on the skill of an individual welder. You know, it's not a common population, it's down to an individual. Um, but if they can do rivet bonding or, or some other thing, you know, there's a lot fewer variables in that, um, even though that can have some challenges as well. You know, we gotta use the right rivets and adhesive and, 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 and rivet gun. But um, outside of that, it's, you know, it's a lot easier to control. Got it. Yeah. Do you think that's a, is it simply the difficulty and just more focus needs to be placed on the training or is there a general lack of focus on welding that, that creates those issues? I think what happens is, is, you know, technicians feel like they know how to weld. They're very proud of that fact. Um, and again, I would say a lot of technicians have learned how to weld by, you know, watching the guy ahead of them. Um, yeah. and, and, you know, that, that tribal knowledge and, you know, the person ahead of them might not have been doing it right. Um, welding again, with all these, especially with the new materials, you know, if you, they probably can weld, um, mild steel really pretty well. Um, but, uh, beyond that, it gets really hard. And, and I think again, from what I've seen, some of the biggest challenges is just being able to see your weld pool and what you're doing, um, having enough light on the on the area that you're welding so that through your your welder's filter on your helmet you can still see what you're doing um, and not uh, get some porosity or skips or, or anything in the weld um, most people don't have enough light 
um, and, and they just don't even know that they're, they're not doing a great job. And unfortunately, you know, destructive testing of weld coupons, which everybody should be doing, probably doesn't happen all that often so that mm. people aren't even getting that, that check on the welds that they are doing. Got it. So maybe maybe another uh, another complicating factor, ultra high strength steel. Um, you've already mentioned it here and there. Where in the market is that ultra high strength steel gaining traction? Well, you know, it's it's going to be gaining traction in body structures, um, mm -hmm. but they can go anywhere. Right. Here's the cool thing I mentioned earlier about this competition between the aluminum industry and the, the steel industry. And they're, they're both really governed by what's possible in the, in the science of metallurgy. Um, with steel, there's something called the steel banana curve, right? And, and engineers and metallurgists talk about the banana curve. And, and what that is, is imagine a, a graph. And on our vertical axis, it's, it's how easy that particular alloy of steel is to, to bend, to form, to elongate, as they say. And on the horizontal axis, it's how much stress or how strong that material is to get that certain deformation. And so what you have is in the upper left-hand corner of this graph, you've got steels that are very easy to form. They deform very easily, they bend very easily, and it doesn't take a lot of stress to do it. And at the other end, in the lower right-hand corner, you've got steels that are very, very strong, but they don't deform very much at all. And that banana curve has really kind of defined what's possible with steel. And there were projections made along that curve, hey, someday we'll get to this point. But now with the challenges that the OEMs have and, and you know aluminum coming into the market to challenge steel because they can deliver certain strengths at, at much lower weights, steel's had to reinvent and they've done some phenomenally cool things with metallurgy to create steel alloys that are not on the banana curve. They jump off the banana curve, but the theoretical limits of steel and get into areas that, you know what, they're actually fairly easy to form, but are still very strong. Um, and, and this is all happening with, with different heat treatments and different alloying elements. Um, but because of all the things they're able to do, these ultra high strength steels are only going to continue to, you know, march down the line and, and become more and more uh, part of, of every vehicle. Um, you know, before we had the, um, we had the body on frame structure, right? And every vehicle had that frame and that frame was a big, heavy, you know, cast or, or mild steel piece. Um, and as we go to the, uh, through the seventies into the eighties, and we get to that, um, monocoque sort of structure, um, you know, we, we got away from that. And those panels are the ones that are now becoming ultra high strength steel because we still need that strength, but we need them to be lighter and lighter. What, what makes it difficult though, like I was saying, is it's some of those shapes that, that get difficult because the, those steels don't want to bend and deform and, and take the, the shape that the OEMs want to give it during stamping and whatnot. And so um, that, that challenges things. So uh, again, flat panels and, and things that don't have a lot of uh, curvature or creases in it will, will work out really well and, and things that, you know, have a lot of topography to it um, will be a little bit more challenging. So what are the challenges of repairing this ultra high strength steel? Well, unfortunately, there, there really isn't a way to visually distinguish one grade of steel from another. Mm. Um, 
the OEM repair procedures you know, will color code the different steels that are in use on a vehicle. Um, but unfortunately, those don't those colors don't actually translate to the vehicle, right? Just because it's it's red on the vehicle in one spot and there's another grade of steel that's orange in their diagram, they the steels themselves aren't painted that color on the vehicle or, or marked that way. Um, and so which, what repairers really have to do um, is, is they've got to look up the OEM repair procedures and, and check those charts. There's some things you can do if you don't have those charts. You can do hardness testing and, and things to really determine um, what that is or, or might be. But again, I always come back to the OEMs have prepared the OEM repair procedures. They've got those references. That's where a repairer needs to go. Um, so th the other challenge here is, is that, you know, the misnomer of, of repairing ultra high strength steel, uh, because most likely a shop's going to be replacing an ultra high strength part, not repairing okay. it. Um, those, those parts, right, they're very, very strong. And so we don't really expect to, to be able to do much metal working on them uh, or structural pulling. By the time an ultra high strength steel part has deformed, it's really experienced a significant amount of damage energy and it's very likely kinked or cracked in some way. Secondly, the unique properties that they have, right, in, in order to be so strong and thin, that's developed through the use of specific heat tempering during formation. And if we add too much heat to an ultra high strength steel part, right, to try and heat it up, to bend it, to move it um, through a heat gun, welding, grinding, you know, we can actually weaken the steel. Um, mm. Honda's actually got a really good picture of this in one of their manuals. Um, it shows the result of a destructive weld test coupon, right? And, and on the one side is a piece of ultra high strength steel, 1500 megapascal steel. And it was mag welded to a piece of mild steel, 590 megapascal steel. The heat generated during that welding process so reduced the strength of the ultra high strength steel that it was the side that broke in the destructive test, not the mild steel. And mm. so, you know, it, it, they're very, very strong unless you heat them or, or do some other things to it. So we've got to be very careful. And that, that is the challenge, A, identifying and figuring out where it is in the vehicle, and then B, what can I do to it? What will the OEM say I can do it? Can I cut it? Do I need to replace it? Can I pull it? Uh, we've got to let the OEMs be our guide there. Wow, fascinating. Wow. Um, your notes mentioned other possible issues with ultra high strength steel, including issues with joints in the inner structure. So could you expand on that, please? Yeah. So, you know, it's always nice when we can do this face to face and live, right? So, right. because I've, I've got one of the, I got this kind of simple thought experiment. I typically do it in an audience. Um, but if we have say a mild steel structure and we've got the joints welded together, Let's envision that as two people facing themselves, facing each other, um, and they both reach out to shake hands. Mm -hmm. They keep their elbows kind of loose. They keep their shoulders loose, and they grasp firmly to have this handshake. At some point during that handshake, somebody comes up behind one of the our, our two people and, and accidentally trips and, and shoves them. Mm -hmm. um, and, and what happens there is, is that impact energy goes, what's going to happen? The, the elbows will bend, the shoulder will bend, right? And, and we'll probably still be holding the other person's hand. You know, our, our joint there, our grasp of the other person's hand and the handshake is strong enough to, you know, overcome whatever stresses get transferred after our elbow and shoulder have kind of absorbed things. Does that make sense? 
So mild steel absorbs energy kind of in that way. It bends and in bending, it, it consumes energy, consumes that crash energy. Now, if we were to redo this thought experiment um, with ultra high strength steel or any very rigid material, it doesn't necessarily have to be steel, but something that's very, very, very strong. This is like our two people who are reaching out to shake hands are locking their shoulders they're locking their elbows, you know, in a very straight fashion and they're grasping hands. And again, somebody comes up behind and say the other person trips and falls. And now when, you know, that impact energy hits that person in the back, you know, we've got our elbow and our shoulder locked in a straight line. So now there's a lot more pressure or, or force that that handshake, our hand grasp has to hold because all that energy is now transferring through that grip. Uh, instead of being absorbed into the shoulder and the elbow. Um, and so if you'd imagine, you know, maybe where palms are a little damp or something, ooh, you know, we, mm. we, we, we slide out of that handshake. Um, and at that point, that's, that's when that joint is breaking. So a very high strength part means that if we don't want our vehicle structures to come apart at, at the seams, literally, right, at the joints, right. we have to make those joints stronger because there's going to be a lot more energy collision energy passing through those joints. Um, and that's why we're seeing the OEMs use a lot more adhesive, right? Because we've got these ultra high strength steel structural members um, and they're backing rivets and um, fasteners and welds with adhesives to really strengthen all those joints because we don't want our vehicles coming apart at the seams. That ultra high strength steel part does us no good if it's no longer attached to anything else. <laughs> So it sounds like changes are afoot as these the new materials come in. What else uh, on the on the ultra high strength steel front should repairers be aware of? Um, you know, it, it just more change, um, and 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 hopefully at this point it isn't so much change as, as an evolution because after the past ten years we should all in the industry be very accustomed to expecting that there are parts on the vehicle that are you know grades of steel that we should not be trying to straighten or, or hammer on or heat or anything. We should be replacing those at the joint, um, yeah. not trying to section it there or anything. And so it's just gonna be more of that. And, and the, the need, uh, the importance of referencing OEM repair guidelines uh, to know where those joints are, to know what the materials are in place and what the OEMs say we can, we can safely uh, separate and how we can do it is is going to be the, the most critical thing. Got it. Very good. Yeah. Looking toward an ever more advanced material, uh, magnesium. Yeah. Is it is magnesium likely, based on your notes, likely to become commonplace? You know, I, I not for a long time, I think. Um, you know, it is one of those materials under construction by the OEMs because it is very, very light for the amount of strength it can provide. Okay. Um, so it really has some attractiveness for use in areas that are already overburdened with weight, right? Say around the engine compartment, core supports, those sorts of areas. Um, because again, lightweighting isn't just taking weight out of a vehicle, it's taking the right weight out of the vehicle at certain points. And so engines are very heavy and dense. So anytime we can take weight out around the engine, that's a good thing. So I would expect to see cast magnesium pieces maybe in the engine block, um, engine mounting core supports, 
those sort those sorts of areas because you know the the weight reduction they could give is great uh, and, and there are very few other ways that maybe we can get it the problem is is that while magnesium is actually one of the most abundant elements on the planet it's very rarely if at all found in a pure state you don't just trip over pure magnesium right um, it needs it's it's that when it happens it's naturally combined with with other elements and very large mineral deposits and so as we dig it out or, or pull it out of the ocean the ocean has actually got a lot of dissolved magnesium in it um, but it has to be refined after we extract those deposits um, and anytime we have to refine something right that's going to add cost uh, and that cost in this case is going to push magnesium in a in a price per pound or price per strength in, in that case beyond aluminum so the other part is is that a magnesium part isn't actually going to be 100 percent magnesium um, which is probably a good thing uh, another challenge is is how reactive magnesium is all right magnesium reacts with water and when it reacts with water it produces hydrogen gas mm. um, and if magnesium catches fire it's very hard to put out because it'll continue to burn in nitrogen a nitrogen environment a carbon dioxide environment and underwater um, wow. now again these parts aren't going to be 100% magnesium, and the OEMs, as they alloy and, and take care of that, you know, the, the risks and chances of that um, are very, very low if, if they haven't been eliminated completely. I don't have information on that. But I think all those extra things that they've got to do, right, to make sure that that isn't um, uh, something that happens, nobody wants that on their watch as an OEM design engineer, um, you know, again, kind of reduces the attractiveness of it a little bit. Right, that that all makes sense. So it's, it's it is a long way off. Much much needs to be refined and figured yeah. out. Very good. So uh, wrapping up here, Jason, what other materials should repairers just have on their radar? Maybe maybe even materials that aren't showing up all that frequently in vehicles, but could be on the horizon. Yeah, you know, I, as I said earlier, I think ultra high strength steels and, and steels in general will be the, around for a long long time, but plastics and reinforced plastic composites you know we should keep an we should keep an eye on what's going on there as the oems get a lot more sophisticated and creative with their manufacturing methods they will further adopt a, you know what they call a multi-material strategy right now everything everything was steel for so long because we wanted to weld everything together as we started to introduce aluminum and other things you know the oems have figured out how to do that in a, an assembly line fashion and an automated assembly line production uh, mindset. And now as we try to get lightweighting to be further and further integrated in, into design, they know now how to deal with lots of different materials. And so they're gonna be using what they consider the best material for each part, not just the most convenient. Yeah. Um, and so as they develop this flexibility, these other things become so much more possible and, and plastics and reinforced composites are relatively inexpensive to produce. They can be tailored and engineered in a sense to fit specific shapes, sizes, and strength profiles. And because of that, they can be very, very lightweight for their strength or their function. Um, people are, you know, always hear about carbon fiber and, and carbon fiber is an example of a reinforced composite. Um, it's kind of an extreme one, right? But that, that's kind of down the road. It doesn't have to be carbon fiber. I'm thinking more along the lines of, of SMC uh, sheet molded compound and other like materials that have been used in the commercial vehicle industry for years. You know, we see those 
those class eight trucks on the road, um, their hoods and a lot of their body panels are, you know, sheet metal, sheet molded compound. Um, and they're, they're really pretty strong and, and lightweight for what they're doing because, you know, weight is what those trucks are trying to shed. If they can reduce weight, they can haul more and get better gas mileage. So um, they're very into the, the whole strength versus weight thing. So I keep an eye on, on what the industry is doing in plastics and, and composites. Very good. Well, this was super interesting, Jason, and I appreciate you taking the time today. Thank you. No, thank you. It was uh, entertaining and I look forward to hopefully doing it again sometime. Thanks for joining us today. Once again, I'm Mike Munzenreiter with Fender Bender and this was Collision Cast.